Welcome to another episode of the Responding to Life podcast. Our guest today is Elise Daniel Barnes. Elise graduated from North Carolina State University in 2018 with a degree in genetics and a minor in biotechnology. While at NCSU, she developed a passion for reproductive health, women's health, and comprehensive sex education, but wasn't sure how that would translate into a career. Her degrees gave her great lab experience, and she wanted to utilize that while also working with patients. She went into the field right after graduation, and over the years, she realized just how little information there is on what actually goes on behind the scenes in the lab. Elise then decided to create her Instagram and TikTok, and it's grown into a great way to educate patients. Infertility is not an easy journey, and she believes understanding what happens in the lab can help give patients peace of mind during their treatment. Her pages have now grown to over 170,000 followers, and she's been featured on BuzzFeed, Good Morning America, Mom.com, and more. So without further ado, let's hear from Elise, and she will drop some knowledge on all things embryos. Welcome to the show, Elise. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited. I, as we were talking a bit before the show started, you know, we met each other back in the spring. Uh, Pregnantish had a great, really informative event, and that's where I first met you. And you're just, just a chock full of insight, especially about this like murky area of embryos and all this stuff. And I knew that our listeners will get such great value um, just picking your brain. So I'm going to ask you a few questions today. I hope you're ready to answer everything that there is about embryos in under 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, look, I can talk about it all day, but I will try to keep it concise. I'm very chatty. <laughs> so um, I could go on and on. I like, you know, I love what I do. So it's, it's always uh, very entertaining for me. <laughs> Oh, well, awesome. So I'm going to dive right in. And um, I was on your website, which is very informative. We can talk about that at the end. So people know how to connect with you. Uh, you have some great services. But one of your blog posts was about embryo grading. So, you know, a lot of my listeners are in the throes of infertility. Some of them are newbies who just have never, like, this is their first time doing this. And it gets really overwhelming with like all the the terminology, all the abbreviations. So I'd love for you to just give us an overview from your perspective as an embryologist, like what does it all mean? And what are those numbers and letters? Like what is it all about? Yeah, absolutely. This is by far my most asked question. And I think it's because, you know, physicians don't always have the time to talk about everything because like you said, it's so overwhelming. There's so much information that, you know, they don't have time to go through it all. So, um, you know, that's, that's kind of an area that I found that gets left out very often. So I have no problem going through it very quickly. Um, but yeah, so essentially, you know, anyone who's listening, who has gone through IVF and has embryos, you're likely getting a report that has some numbers on it, some letters on it, and you're not quite sure what it all means. Um, really, when we break it down, we are looking at three different things when it comes to embryo grading. The first being embryo expansion, which is the number. Um, and then the first letter is the grading of the ICM, which stands for the inner cell mass, which is what becomes the baby. And then that last letter in the grading system, um, which is, like I said, it's also a letter, um, that is standing for the trophectoderm. So that's grading the trophectoderm, which is what becomes the placenta. 
So all three of those things together is what um, gives us the overall grade of the embryo. Now, sometimes it can be a little scary because you might you may be getting some C's in there and you're thinking about on a grading scale, A, B, C, you know, if you're going to C in a class, it's not necessarily the best. Um, so I know a lot of patients can kind of panic when they don't necessarily have the top quality grades. Um, but I always like to ease patients' minds with, you know, just because it's a fair or a poor quality embryo doesn't necessarily mean that it won't make a baby or won't be genetically normal. Um, I see these things happen all the time and they make beautiful, healthy babies and they are genetically normal. Um, and so I like to kind of have the perspective that, hey, if your embryologist froze it and thought it was good enough quality to freeze or to transfer, um, you know, that should be a good thing. You know, we don't want to freeze anything that patients shouldn't use. That's a waste of our time. That's a waste of their money. It's a waste of all these things. Um, so we really try to make sure that we're freezing embryos that are worth transferring. Um, and, you know, I kind of skipped over a little bit of the, you know, good, fair, and poor with A, B, and C. Um, but, you know, in that first letter in the grading system is, is going to be um, like on a grading scale, A, B, and C. So A being the best, B being fair and C being poor and that's the same thing with the trophectoderm A is good B is fair C is poor and then we kind of combine them so you'll have an AA or an AB or a BA and all these different combinations um, and there's a great breakdown um, in that article about what each of those mean but essentially when you're thinking about it A is good B is fair C is poor um, and I don't like patients to get too caught up in the embryo grades like I said you know we we want patients to transfer the embryos that we froze and and we we you know, I can understand the concern that patients have with having a, a poor quality embryo, um, but they're definitely still transferring. They definitely create, you know, healthy babies, um, like I said before. And um, yeah, definitely worth, definitely worth transferring there. I kind of went on a, I kind of went on a, a tangent on that one. <laughs> no, that's okay. That <laughs> no, that totally makes sense. Um, and then the numbers, right? Don't they associate a number at the beginning? Of that they do so that number in the beginning is telling us the expansion of the embryo and as an embryo grows um the zona of the embryo which is kind of that outer shell will start to thin and then eventually the the inner embryo will hatch out of that shell and it has to hatch out to implant to create a healthy pregnancy and all of those things so we're looking at kind of the maturity of the embryo with that number i don't like to think of it think of it as good or bad, um, because it isn't really good or bad. It kind of gives us the maturity of the embryo. Um, so embryo grade, you know, expansion number one through four, those are telling us that the embryo is still in the zona, that shell is still around the embryo. Um, and as we get to a four, that means this, that zona is very thin. The embryo has kind of grown and pushed on that zona and made it very thin. And then we get to numbers five and six. That's when the embryo is either hatching out, which is a five. So some of it is starting to come out of the embryo. Um, and then with six, which is a fully hatched embryo, that's when that zona is completely gone. It's completely hatched out of that embryo. Um, and you'll see various different stages um, of that expansion grade, depending on if your clinic um, hatches with a laser or does not hatch with a laser or hatches after thaw. You'll kind of see a different variety of those um, those expansion numbers. Um, and like I said, I don't really consider them good or bad. Um, the most common you'll see though is four through six. Um, typically one and two, the embryos are too early for us to do anything with. 
And those embryos are usually left overnight. And sometimes we'll call those early blastocysts. So they're starting to form, but that zone is still very thick um, and too thick for us to, to kind of manipulate them at that point. We want to give them a little bit more time. Awesome. Thank you so much for diving into that. Because, you know, as you mentioned in the very beginning, you're right. It feels like when you first meet up with the reproductive um, doctor, that uh, there's just so much to go through and that you're going through kind of like the immediate stuff, like with the medications and all these things. And then when you finally get, when you finally get to that point where you actually have embryos to be talking about, it just becomes like this hurried sort of thing. At least that has been my experience and sounds like with many of like my listeners and friends. Um, So it's great that we have, people like yourself who are like, speaking out about it and just really informing, taking the time to inform the community about it. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I agree. You kind of are, you know, you're seeing your physician or your nurse throughout this whole stimulation process. And then when you get to retrieval, it's kind of like, okay, you know, there you go. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know, there's not a lot of, not a lot of handholding at that point, which I feel like is really when, you need more of the handholding because that waiting game is hard. I'm sure, you know, like the waiting I've heard from from every patient I've talked to is, is the hardest part. Right. Yeah. And then, so you're waiting and you get the retrieval and then things are sort of done to, to the egg. And then all of a sudden you just get a mysterious phone call from someone you've never met and they're giving you, they're throwing a bunch of numbers and letters (laughs) you and you're like okay you're gonna make a decision with your doctor but this is what we got and you're like what is happening (laughs) um so it's it's nice to like yeah just get um sort of uh like a dry run about what they'll be hearing um and back in the day um there were transfers that were frozen not frozen but it's sounding like most people are they freezing now the embryos and then and are I think they doing it really fresh cycles on yeah th- that's a, another question that I get very very often is you know this fresh versus frozen and I think it really depends on the physician and the practice because I've been at practices where you know 95% of the patients are freezing for one reason or another and I've been at some practices that do a lot more fresh transfers and honestly the research shows that pregnancy rates are the same. You know, they're, they're so close to the same, but honestly, it, it comes down to which one is a better fit for you, um, at, you know, depending on all these factors that, you know, come involved. And the reason why I see, I think I'm seeing more, more and more patients that are doing frozen transfers is, you know, a couple reasons. One, a lot of patients are doing PGT testing, which means that it's hard to do a fresh transfer. We don't get results back in time to do a fresh transfer. So that requires us to biopsy the embryo, freeze it, send off the, you know, the, the cells, wait for the results, and then we can do a transfer. So that that's one reason why I see a lot more patients doing frozen transfers. Um, the other reason uh, I see patients doing frozen transfers instead of fresh is you know, the stimulation journey and the retrieval journey is not easy on your body, on your pocketbook, on your emotions. And a lot of people just need a break. They're like, I, you know, we, we took us this long to get to this point. A lot of times it takes people a couple cycles to get, you know, to a retrieval cycle. And, and they're just a little tired. They're a little burned out. Um, and so they just take some rest for their own, you know, self-care, which I think is great if, if they're feeling like they need that. Um, and so a lot of patients pause 
we're going to pause the finances, pause, you know, all of these things that are happening and, and regroup and then, and then start with the frozen cycle. Um, and then the last reason I see that patients don't do fresh transfers is they're not a good candidate for it. You know, if we're, if their levels aren't in the right range or their lining isn't in the right range, the physician might say, Hey, you know, I know our plan was a fresh transfer, but we're not seeing levels where we want them. And so I think it's best for us to pause and regroup. And so um, a frozen transfer does allow us to kind of regroup and get lining and levels, you know, and as optimal as we can for that transfer. Okay. So when you're talking, like two questions popped up in my mind, and I'm going to throw it out there so I don't forget because I always, I always forget. Um, one is the whole PGT testing and just because that wasn't a thing back when I harvested my eggs and they turned into embryos. Um, so that whole thing is just a little foreign to me. And the other thing is the freezing process. Is there any like degradation to the embryo? Um, when they get thawed and they get thawed out and then reevaluated for um, transfer. Absolutely. So PGT stands for pre-implantation genetic testing. And for most patients that is for aneuploidy, which is something, which is genetic abnormalities that happen during the growth of the embryo, not something that's passed from parents to the embryo. Um, we can test for those things. That's a different type of PGT testing. There's PGT-A, which is what I described before, PGT-M, which is for something passed down like sickle cell or cystic fibrosis, any of those things that are inherited. And then we have PGT-SR, which is for structural rearrangements, balance, you know, things like balance translocations, inversions, that, that sort of thing. Um, most patients are doing PGT-A. That's, that's the most common. Um, and that's to test for things like um, trisomy 18, trisomy 16, down syndrome, Turner syndrome, any of the other um, sex chromosome disorders, Klinefelters, that sort of thing. Um, and because, you know, as we age, our body has a hard time correcting some of those um, genetic um, abnormalities that happen as we're producing eggs or producing sperm or while an embryo is being created. Um, and so as people, now that people are waiting longer to have children, which is completely fine, um, we are seeing higher rates of aneuploidy because after the age of 35, those rates of aneuploidy do go up. And so patients oftentimes want to ensure that the embryo that they're transferring is genetically normal. Um, and so they're doing PGT testing and that requires us to take a few um, cells between five and 10 cells from the trophectoderm of the embryo, which is like I said before, what becomes the placenta. And we're sending those cells off to a genetic testing company. They're looking at the DNA, amplifying it and, and telling us whether that embryo is normal um, or abnormal, abnormal and, you know, mosaic, which is, you know, this other crazy, we could just go on and on about all these things. Um, but um, what I will say is PGT doesn't really increase pregnancy rates but it does allow us um, to get to pregnancy faster. It, we, we like to see it, see it, we like to look at it like a selection tool. So while we have three embryos, you know, they, the first one, the first two may be abnormal and we may not know that with P, without PGT testing. And so we have to do two cycles to get through those embryos. And, you know, they, they, they likely weren't successful before we get to that normal one. Um, but when we do PGT testing, we can say, oh, those these first two that we, we would have transferred based on just grade are abnormal. So let's 
go ahead and skip to this last one. And so that saves the patient some time and some money and gets to pregnancy a little bit faster. Um, but unfortunately, doesn't necessarily improve pregnancy rates um, in general. It, it, we like to think of it more of a, a selection tool. Uh, okay, got it. Uh, uh, thank you. I was just say thank you yeah. because it's it was um, you know I feel like things are just developing very quickly in in this field and just like in general. And so you can be in it and then trying to have a kid and then maybe like a few years later and then it's just like a completely different landscape and there are all these new things to consider um so if you do find that you have some abnormal ones and you find that you have um some better quality ones you didn't find anything with the, the genetic testing does that mean that you then discard the ones that may have come out as abnormal or are those still something that you keep in your back pocket? I mean, obviously it depends on what is actually found, but um, how does that, yeah. does that work? That's a great question. And the first thing we like patients to do is to talk to a genetic counselor. We are not genetic experts, although I did get my undergrad in genetics, but they've got way more training than I do in knowledge. Um, and so we want them to talk to a genetic counselor and to really understand what some of these genetic abnormalities could mean um, if they decided to transfer, transfer or if they decided, you know, if they did end up with a pregnancy, what could that mean for um, the future child? And once they've had that conversation, um, there are a lot of patients who decide, hey, these abnormal embryos, they're not compatible with life. They're not, they're not going to get me pregnant or we're not going to be able to maintain a pregnancy. Um, so I would like to discard them. And depending on the practice, there's a couple things you can do in terms of embryo disposition. That's kind of what we call it. Um, there are a lot of clinics that in their pre-IVF consents, all the consents that you sign, will say, we reserve the right to discard these embryos. That's totally fine. That's very common. Um, if that's something that you are not comfortable with, definitely make sure you read those consents carefully and have a conversation with your physician because there's other things we can do. Um, we can donate them to quality control or research, um, which oftentimes allows us to either train or try out new technology, try out new medias. Um, and so patients can donate them donate them that way. Um, we also do something called, a lot of clinics do, um, something called a compassionate transfer, um, which is becoming a lot more common, especially in very conservative states that aren't allowing embryo discarding and things like that, like Louisiana and Mississippi, those sorts of states. Um, that is when we transfer the embryo either into the vagina or off cycle. So in a time of your cycle where you're very, it's very unlikely that you get pregnant. Um, and so a lot of patients are, are turning to that either one, because of their, their state's laws or two, because that's what they feel like they, they want to do for, for, you know, how do they want to honor their embryo or however they'd like to do it. Um, I will say that with that option, there is a little bit of a price involved um, because oh. it does cost to, to set up and thaw and all those things. So that's something I like for people, anyone who's listening to keep in mind, is it's usually on a free process, um, but it is something you can talk with your doctor about if it's something that you're interested in doing. I had never heard of that before. Like I said, like it's just constantly changing. And did that happen because of, like you said, as you mentioned, just the evolving state laws with, um, with embryo discarding and things like that? Is that just how that sort of came about? So it's been something that's been, a, um, patients have done or requested for a while now, oh, um, but okay. it's definitely becoming more popular with mm. the overturning of Roe and, and some new yeah. laws being put into place. 
so we're seeing an, an increase of patients asking for that. The other one I forgot to mention is I've actually had a couple of patients request to take their embryos home. They're saying, hey, we're okay. either family complete or the embryos are abnormal. Um, ultimately, they, they do die. Um, but they want to take straws home that the embryos are frozen on. So um, embryos are frozen. I have one here in my office, but you guys won't be able to see, obviously, because you're listening. But um, we have these straws. They're um, quite thin, you know, skinnier than a pencil. What is, and that's what we are freezing your embryos on. They're called straws. Um, and each individual embryo is frozen on a straw. So one straw to one embryo. And um, we can, once we get the genetic report back, we can say, oh, straws one, two, and three, which are embryos one, two, and three, are abnormal. Those will be discarded um, or those will be donated or those will be you know, transferred or whatever. Um, and patients have asked to take those home. So what we do is essentially at our end, it looks like a, dis- uh, a disposal um, because we check all the consents and all those sorts of things. But instead of, of putting them in, in biohazard, and we actually give them to the patient and they are welcome to do what they please with them. We've had some patients who wanted to have their own private, you know, moment with their embryos or a ceremony or bury them or whatever they'd like to do with them. Um, I always think that's a great, um, a great way to honor the embryos. However you, however you'd like to do it. Um, You know, that, that gives you a lot of creative freedom and, and, and honoring them how you'd like. So um, I've seen that, that option as well. And for anyone who's listening, if there is an unconventional option that you would like you know, to do with the embryos that you, you have, ask your physician, ask your clinic, you know, we're generally very open to unconventional methods of, of um, disposition. If, if it's within our realm to do, and we've got consents for it or can create consents for it, we will, we're usually happy to oblige because, um, you know, these are your embryos and we want you to, to do with them what you'd like. So. Um, just keep that in mind. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that up. I myself had not yeah. heard of that, but I love that idea, um, especially for people who need, who want closure and um, want another option for for their embryos. Because I remember getting that letter every year, and, not, and everything didn't really jive with me. I always felt not like something I wanted to do. But um, that's amazing. Thank you for sharing that. Um, yeah. We're almost out of time, but. Uh, another thing that I wanted to talk about so is <laughs> is um, a lot of people are doing embryo donation and using that as a route for family building. Um, what are some tips that you would recommend to someone who's going that route in terms of what they should consider, who they should speak to, all those things? Absolutely. That's a great question. Again, with, with some of the more um, the newer laws that are coming into place, embryo donation and adoption are becoming a lot more popular. Um, really, I think it's a great idea. And if your clinic doesn't, a lot of clinics require this, but talking to a reproductive psychologist, they can help you just consider things that you may not have considered before. Um, they've worked, they work with these patients all the time with donor conceived people with, with people using different gametes and all sorts of things. And, um, you know, I think it's a great way to make sure you kind of cover all your, ba- all your bases in terms of what will this really look like for our family in the future? What, um, you know, what kind of questions may my child have? How can I address those questions? Um, and, you know, it could be an ongoing thing that you have throughout, you know, you and your family's life and your child's life. Um, but it's always great to talk to them before you start the process, just to make sure that there isn't anything that you hadn't considered and uh, going through that process. So I always recommend patients to do that um, if they're considering it. Um, The other thing is most clinics will require you to send the documentation in 
from from the lab. So they're, we're looking for an embryology report um, that tells us, you know, all of those embryo grades, what the embryos are frozen on, the protocol, all those things, because it's likely that the clinic that the embryos were created in is a different clinic than where you're going. And we want to make sure that we're comfortable with their protocol, with the device that they're using, you know, those straws that I talked about, there's different versions of those, um, all requiring, you know, a little bit different of a technique. And so we want to make sure that we're comfortable with all those things, because we don't want to get your embryos in and then be like, oh my gosh, I've never thought one of these before, one of these devices before, you know, we don't want to find that out on the day of your transfer. We want to make sure we, we have that information beforehand. So if it is a device that maybe we're not as familiar with, we can practice with it or, you know, get some, some trial devices from a company to practice with or even straight up say, hey, we're not comfortable with this. We're not going to accept these embryos. There are a lot of clinics that, you know, have certain devices or, you know, certain embryo grows that they won't accept for one reason or the other. So um, that's another thing that we request. So it's a lot of paperwork on the front end, which I think can scare a lot of patients off because we're asking for all these things before we say, yeah, you can do this. Um, but it's really just to ensure that your process, once you're here, goes very smoothly. Because again, we don't want you to get to, to you know, you've been doing all these progesterone shots. And then on the day of, we're like, wait, no, we're not comfortable with this. Um, so I think it's a great option for, for patients who are considering that. Thank you for those tips. Uh, those were things like you mentioned previously, the genetic counselor, and this time the reproductive psychologist. Um, those are things that I think maybe people don't realize are part of like the whole landscape of a team that are involved with with this whole process of trying to conceive a child. Do you find that most facilities will have those sorts of um, people on staff? Or is that something that people typically like go outside to sort of consult with? Yeah, so it depends on how large the practice is. I know in some of the smaller practices I've worked at, they don't have one on staff, but they have one they can refer you to. Mm-hmm. You know, they have a, um, a genetic counselor they can f- refer you to or a reproductive psychologist. The other one I forgot to mention is a reproductive lawyer. Those are also very important, mm-hmm. especially with embryo donation or any sort of donor gametes. Make sure you check them out as well. Get a consult. Um, but yeah, we're, we're kind of a whole team. And some of them, I have seen some clinics that will have a counselor on staff or an acupuncturist on staff or joint counselor on staff. Um, those are usually larger practices that have a lot more physicians, a lot more embryologists. Um, some of the pro- smaller practices do still know where to send you for some of those resources, which is great. Um, the other thing I'll mention is if you are doing PGT testing and want to talk to a genetic counselor, the PGT testing center that you used, iGenomics, Cooper, Invitae, any of those, they have genetic counselors that you can talk with for free because you're mm. using their service. Um, so take advantage of that. Um, definitely look into that option first before you decide to pay for one. There's no nothing wrong with getting a second opinion, uh, but usually that is included in um, what you're paying for your testing. Amazing. Thank you for that. You're right. I mean, I've worked with many of the um, the labs and stuff, and they do, they do are, are trying to definitely like – full service and offer those sorts of things. So thank you for mentioning that. And in that sort of same vein, I'd love for you, Elise, to share with our listeners how they can um, follow along with you. Perhaps I know you offer on your website some services where people can um, have consults with you. So please um, share with us how we can all do that. 
Yeah, absolutely. Where my, my biggest platforms are Instagram and TikTok. Those are both at Alicia Embryologist. Um, and then if you're interested in a Q&A session, I've got 30 minutes and an hour. Those are both available on my um, website at aliciaembryologist.com. Um, yeah, so definitely feel free to check it out if it's something that you're you're interested in. Well, thank you so much. This, I mean, I learned so much um, in just under 30 minutes, and I appreciate you taking the time. Thanks so much, Elise. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for joining me on another episode of the Responding to Life podcast. It was so great hearing all about the ins and outs of embryo freezing from Elise. She is such a wealth of information. Be sure to check out all the ways in which to connect with her in the show notes. For more information on the Responding to Life podcast, please visit jatluri.com where I have all the previous episodes and transcripts available for you. On the site, you can also sign up for a monthly newsletter that comes with a free 30-day mindfulness guide. So until the next episode, I wish you all well, and thank you so much for listening to today's episode.